how organizations can make these huge changes with little tiny steps. Welcome to Geneva's Geeks. I'm Meg Riggs, the host of this episode and a member of the public diplomacy team at the U.S. Mission to the United Nations in Geneva. For today's podcast, I am joined by three leaders who are the embodiment of the trifecta that makes Geneva's work so impactful, nation states, the United Nations, and civil society. 20 years after the Beijing Declaration, the statistics show we are not even close to achieving our gender equality goals. Today, all of Geneva is collaborating together to identify concrete actions to change how we do business. These three guests are at the center of this effort. But before we jump into our discussion, listeners should know that our guests who participate in this podcast do so in their personal capacity. They are volunteering their time. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed belong solely to the discussant alone and do not necessarily represent the official position or policy of their employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. That is the end of our boringly necessary legal disclaimer. Also, I want to thank the United Nations Information Service for making available to us the historic League of Nations radio studio. Now, dear guests, if you would, please introduce yourself, what you do, and where you're from. I'm Caitlin Kraft Buckman. I'm founder and executive director of Women at the Table, which is a Geneva-based NGO. And where are you from? Originally from New York, but I've been in Geneva for 20 years. I'm Michael Muller. I'm from Denmark. I'm an undersecretary general of the United Nations. I'm also the director general of the United Nations office here at Geneva. And I have a third hat, which is the secretary general of the Conference on the Samarat. And uh, I have, it's now my fourth time here in Geneva. I started my career here and I'm having quite a lot of fun doing what I'm doing. Hi, my name is Veronica Bard. I'm ambassador and permanent representative of Sweden here in Geneva. I'm Swedish, but I'm also half German, which has formed a bit of my personality and ideas. <laughs> tell me about the now international gender champions. Caitlin, tell us about where we started. What's our founding story? Women at the Table approached the U.S. mission to host a salon series of working lunches to explore new ways for more women, more seats, more influence. And the first salon, which we did in co-production in participation with The Future She Deserves, an initiative of the U.S. mission, um, dealt with women's leadership. And we addressed, we decided to have a catalytic question to start us off, which is, what are the barriers to women having visibility and influence in corridors of power from the grassroots to the top of international Geneva? which is still a question that we're wrestling with today. And we had ambassadors from all over. We had ambassadors from New Zealand, Chile, Sierra Leone, Sudan, Belgium, Denmark, the EU, DCMs from Canada, Spain, Tanzania, the Netherlands, Sweden, um, and directors from the Red Cross, the High Commission of Refugees, the Economic Commission, World Wildlife Federation, the Interparliamentary Union, the World Meteorological Organization, the World Intellectual Property Organization, World Health Organization, and also a civil society with obviously women at the table, but Geneva Call, Humanity, the Oak Foundation. So we all sat around tables, about 60 of us, very excited, breaking silos, first time all together. And when we sent people back to their tables with the series of questions, one of which was, you know, should we have a panel pledge? Another of which was, do we need champions? And indeed, rapporteurs came back and they said, yes, absolutely. We need a champion group and we need to move this forward. And then very shortly afterwards, two of the directors that were there at that incredible UNOG um, 
lunch said, yeah, the director general's in and he wants to do it. So that is the, sort of the genesis of how the director general of the UN office in Geneva, the US ambassador to the international organizations, Pam Hamamoto, and, uh, and me with women at the table came to be the three founders. It always, it always makes me laugh a little bit because we did this great salon, there was all this energy, and then a few weeks went by and there was this like, oh, we're the only ones. And then when you approached our ambassador, like, all right, my team's charged. We want to do this. Where were you as your team kind of brought this to you? The same way as I think uh, both Pamela and Caitlin um, have felt for a long time that the issue of gender and gender parity was a lot of talk and very little action. We're all a bit fed up with that. And so this was a, a very simple, practical, focused initiative that was easy to understand for everybody, easy to implement, easy to measure. Um, and I thought it was a great opportunity. Um, I didn't think it would take off as it did, which was great. But I think that the combined energy of uh, Pamela Hamamoto and Caitlin and myself and our colleagues and the, the, the sort of collective understanding and enthusiasm uh, really sort of made it take off. I think it's one of those initiatives that just happened to happen at the right time when people were beginning to get that we simply couldn't continue the way we did. When we were looking at the statistics and realizing that if we were going to get, certainly in my area of responsibility uh, and beyond here in Geneva, we were looking at figures that were telling us that if we were going to hope for uh, doing business as usual in terms of getting gender parity, we wouldn't reach it till 2095 or some ridiculous amount of years from now. So we decided we needed to push, which is what we've done. And where was Sweden's thoughts at the beginning of this? My predecessor, a male, he was one of the original gender champions. So when I came in, everything was already more or less in place, or work had, had been going on. And for me, it was absolutely natural to apply for being a gender champion. And, and the reason is, of course, that Sweden for the last hundred of years have been trying to promote gender equity with some positive, but also some negative results and there is a realization that you can't do anything alone sweden can't do anything alone we have to to build a network be part of a network but also the fact that some years ago uh, the new swedish government initiated or it declared it wanted to pursue a feminist policy it's a feminist government that means that Gender equity is part of foreign and security policy. It's also part of uh, the ambition to decrease poverty or erase poverty, but also to promote sustainable development. And for all this, you need to work on gender equality because women are half of the population. And with inequalities, we will not reach these goals. Uh, also, one important aspect is that we had some new uh, experience of gender budgeting in all areas of, of policy. What do you think the big successes of these first, it's about two years now that we've been mm -hmm. kind of rolling with Almost, this. yeah. It's Lots Jews. of successes. Yeah. There have been a, a, a bunch of things and one very big, wonderful surprise, I think. Um, some of the more sort of hardcore things are these ideas of impact groups, right? We have a health impact group that actually had their call to action to, to partner with the World Health Organization to have more gender balance in its management, but also its external programming was published in The Lancet. So already we felt really interested to see that this is, you know, we spread out in that way. We have a bunch <coughs> of trade ambassadors who are focused on what would it 
look like if, if gender was included or gender responsiveness in a trade agreement or amendment. So there's, there's lots of um, delving and discussion going on. But for me, one of the really big things is they, we have these extraordinary champions, right, who are every, because of Michael, every single international organization is signed on from the top. But because of that, these people with these huge staffs, their focal points have felt really empowered to do something in their area of interest. And there, there has been some extraordinary creativity that we certainly, because this has all been at so many happy surprises, but when at the WTO, a young woman in charge of the public forum for the first time said, we're going to talk about gender at the public forum. We're going to devote the atrium to a discussion of gender and trade. We're going to have panels about it. That was a very big Thing for the World Trade Organization. Also, the European Economic Commission, there's a macroeconomic uh, economist there, and she's convened standards makers from around the world to have a conversation. We were just on the phone yesterday with New Zealand and Australia and Canada, and of course, the standards body is all based here, about what would a gender-responsive standard look like. That was, is beyond my wildest imagination that somebody would think of that, but what a powerful potentially transformative thing so well I think there's plenty of stuff I mean first of all the initiative itself is uh, much more successful than I thought it would be we're in Geneva over 130 champions by now it's spreading to other cities we've just opened a chapter in New York the sector general himself is now a gender champion as he was when he was high commissioner for refugees here and it looks like we're going to have a chapter in Vienna in Rome and in, um, in Nairobi it's spreading beyond uh, our sort of diplomatic community I'm now having heads of multinational corporations coming up to me and say, we love what you do. And we are um, uh, replicating it in our own businesses. In very real terms uh, here, in, in the area where I'm responsible for, well, first of all, uh, just to, re to remind you that the first, the, the, the one commitment that everybody signs up to is to promise that none of us will ever again be on a panel or in a discussion where both genders aren't represented. So no panels with only men or only women for that matter. And that has changed the way we work um, uh, because uh, uh, there are very few. I personally walk away from a discussion if uh, there's only one uh, gender represented and people know that so it doesn't happen. My personal uh, second uh, commitment uh, was to institute a gender policy which we didn't have in the UN building here. And that's now in place since last year. And uh, it's, we, I think we did a good job because it's now being emulated in other duty stations and other places where the UN is working. And third, we have it helped us push parity in our staff. We are now overall about 48% female in our staff composition. The one area where it's always a problem, both in organizations, international organizations, and the public sector as well, is at the top. In 2015, when we started this, female representation at the four top levels was 34.4%. A year later, it was 41%, because it really pushed everybody, and I'm pushing all my managers to make sure that they look very carefully at how they recruit. So, but, you know, we're on the right track. And those are all successes that we continue to build on. I think recruitment is a big piece of it. A lot of the research we did with the impact groups was realizing that the number one answer people said was, well, they're not applying or they're not interested. And what we found is that they weren't recruiting in the right places. In fact, the assumption that I can put it where I've traditionally done it and then women will know they mean them was a faulty assumption. And yeah, of course. Adjusting recruitment things is a very tactical shift. In terms of having experts, I remember very early on one case where I was invited to a bunch of discussions, a whole days of different kind of workshops, and I looked at a program, there wasn't a single woman in any of the panels. So I had these organizers call up and says, A, I'm not coming, and B, on this you change this, I'm taking away the room you're going to meet in. Four hours later, I got a new program 
with women on every single panel, and very good ones. So the, the nonsense that we kept hearing that, you know, there are no, no women out there who are experts, so it's complete nonsense. Of course they are. And the other side of that coin is that if you make sure that this happens, you also empower these experts that are the female experts, and it, they, it becomes part of bloodstream, if you want, and it, the reflexes are changed in, in, our, in our staff to, um, to broaden their the view on, 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 the, on the pool of experts that they're going to be looking for. So it helps, you know, there is an impact. It came to me when I arrived here with instructions from the Swedish government, which is a feminist government, that we used to speak about that back in Stockholm, that there's a giggle factor of feminist government, feminist foreign policy. But it was so much easier because the awareness raising job, uh, Director Mueller, Caitlin uh, Kraft-Buchmann and the former US ambassador already had done, made it so much easier and the doors were open so that this awareness raising factor is very important. But of course there are layers we still have to drill deeper into because gender blindness is very resistive and, and you have to detect it. Even you yourself have to ask yourself uh, it, it, the way you handle your, your staff, the, the way you make decisions. And the power with uh, international Geneva Gender Champions, I think, is this multi-stakeholder uh, tripartite network of states, the whole of UN and civil society. Because together, this composition could allow us to, to be more pragmatic, as, as Dr. Muller said. We have now to go from words into pragmatic work. And we ourselves have ambitions, commitments, we can impact in our organizations. That's the point of departure. Mm. But but now we have to go, go further. And there is one quote I, I like a lot from an economist in the World Bank who's, who, who says, you don't have to be rich to treat women well, which means that this is not a huge... Uh, there, there are not huge obstacles if you really want to take on this work. You can start little by little. Can I... I want to jump on your comment you said about blindness, about being gender blind. People who are working on diversity circles right now, there's a movement to move away from the kind of colorblind or gender blind and be gender fluent or color fluent because it's always there. And so being blind to it means you're not actually understanding how it intervenes. And through all of our work, I've always been like, but how are we gender fluent in the thing that we're doing? And one thing that's come out of the work that I've loved is the work on delegations. That if you don't have member states sending, like if the United States does not send a diverse group of people yeah. as a delegation, mm -hmm. then they're not being asked to be on panels. They're not seeing how this work is being done. And then they're never asked to be vice chair or chair. Mm -hmm. And then they're not even in consideration for the directorship because they haven't built a reputation in that field. Mm -hmm. And so getting the member states to really think about how do we send our delegations, and it's not easy. I can speak from personal experience to go back to capital and say, <clears throat> that delegation doesn't do us right. Um, but it also, what I've loved is the awakening of like IPU was really forward leaning mm -hmm. and the kind of parameters and the pressure they were putting on member states to be more mindful about their delegations mm -hmm. and seeing other UN agencies literally say, I can do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so then that collaborative realizing that each agency assumes they have their corporate culture, their way of doing it, and that there is actually a much bigger room for creativity. But it's, you know, I think that's one of the successes as well because the, the realization that this is important, but and they several of these organizations have gone further and have actually sanctioned um, countries who don't come with a gender mix. The IPU, the International uh, Interparliamentary Union, even the World Economic Forum is telling their delegates who pay lots of money to come, they're doing it the other way around. They give them incentives. It's if they um, make sure that their delegations 
uh, have both genders, they will be allowed to bring an extra delegate. So, you know, there, there's a kind of an evolution in the way that people are acting on this. And I did, since I have the floor, let me just also mention that one of the things that we are addressing very much here is uh, is the hidden biases that people have, which are important. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing, we've now included a gender component in all training, certainly in, in induction training when new staff come on board and they get, uh, you know, briefed about what's going on here. And we have specific trainings to do away with these hidden biases and just to make sure that we overcome that sort of automatic uh, genetic mm -hmm. or DNA stuff that we need to change. And it's beginning to work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the, the awareness component is very, very powerful. And I would have said in the beginning, being the activist in this group, that just awareness wouldn't be very much. But it's been totally powerful because people now see where they hadn't seen before that there were all men sitting there, my, myself included. And I think now this is just this digging down past the bias, past, which is very sticky, right? And that's the bi unconscious bias training is that next layer but then it turns out there there's so many other layers to sort of address this because our it's really embedded in our in our dna as well um and one of the things that had started us off was a washington post article that had said that women are not shortlisted for finance minister because they're not at the world economic forum mm -hmm. speaking at davos and we had thought gee that's in switzerland that's just real where we're sitting and this is a, this is something we might be able to impact which I'm sure we will. Let's talk yeah. about why Geneva. Caitlin spoke about impact groups and you spoke about gender fluency. And we, that's one of the areas we are working on. For example, those permanent representatives who sit on boards in treaty bodies, who influence the choice of candidates, for example, mm -hmm. to be elected for special representatives. So uh, in a week or so, we, we will gather uh, as many of these influential permanent representatives and just give them some statistics about uh, how it works, and we will make use of the good experience of uh, IPU. Mm -hmm. So why Geneva? Geneva has this extraordinary ecosystem and is and the operational hub of the international system to an extent that most people don't quite realize, even some of the people who live here. There's no other place on the planet that has as many actors work on uh, as many issues that touch as many people on the planet as happens here. So you have a very, and on top of that, it's sort of, compared to other duty stations, it's more technical. It's not as politicized. It's a lot easier to get agreement between uh, technicians than it is between diplomats sometimes, or politicians. So you have a, a very tight ecosystem here, a very tightly knit uh, carpet, if you want, of different kinds of organizations and, and objectives. So the impact of what you do and the, the ability to leverage uh, new initiatives, etc., happens much faster and is much deeper and becomes, because the the, the usefulness of it in very practical day-to-day -day terms in terms of impact are seen much faster and therefore people act on them. So it's a very good laboratory, if you want, for these kinds of new initiatives because people get it and because it is such a tight-knit. For example, today, if you're, a, if you're an ambassador, it's no longer cool not to be a gender champion. Same with heads of agencies. Um, so, which is why it's sort of caught on and, and, and kind of snowballed. But it snowballs not just in real terms, in real impactful terms. It's not just people do it because it looks good on your CV or, you know, you have to can wear a pin or whatever it is. Geneva is really an interesting uh, place for what we call international Geneva in many ways. And the interesting thing is that it spreads 
also because of what we were talking before about the Sustainable Development Goals, which is really our collective roadmap globally, which all has put everybody in a way that we haven't been before on the same page and we're all marching in the same direction in trying to improve the, the fate of the planet and improve the lives of our, the next generations. A lot of the actors who are working on that are here as well. So more and more people realize, as, uh, as Veronica said before, that there's no way we're going to make it unless the whole of humanity is part of that effort. And we have to make sure that women are just as active and just as involved and just as impactful as, uh, as men uh, try to be. Usually they end up being more impactful, but that's a different right. story. Well, you know, I want to also add, because all of these experts are really sitting here, um, we had uh, at the very early, at the onset, uh, at our first big champions meeting, we had a professor from Oxford who came to speak to us and said, you know, this is the first time probably in history, which seems like a large, large statement to make, that heads of health and trade and telecommunications and, and humanitarian work and sitting together all in the same place just talking about gender that this isn't a conversation that happens across all those different sectors in that way. And I think part of the power here is that we have people working in so many different areas that affect humanity, but are really looking at this one thing that very often is the first thing taken off the table. It's very often the first, it's a good to have, it's luxurious, it's northern. At one point, um, uh, the Canadian ambassador said her greatest wish at one of these salons was that the gender not be the first thing that's taken off the table as a negotiating chip. Mm -hmm. If she was able to affect that change, that would be a big thing. And Mm -hmm. I I thought that was very powerful. It's easy to see how obvious it is that... um, inequality in our societies will make it much more difficult to reach the objectives and goals we have because as a prime rep you sit in all the areas which are essential for example the SDGs or the 2030 agenda. I have just such an example from the Human Rights Council where we are working on an internet resolution and in the last resolution we brought in the gender divide aspect which made it so much easier actually to get a consensus. And now we have a report that shows very well that societies that don't offer internet to women, half population, will have huge difficulties to develop, to get the economic uh, levels they they want to have for, for a good society for their citizens. So there are so many possibilities to prove and make strides here in in Geneva with this wonderful mixture of 40 organizations, all areas of life actually uh, represented. The trick is now, as we uh, are doing, is to spread the word and spread spread the initiative. And it's happening. Yeah. Can I say we were remiss on your list that we actually have a new group in Bonn, Berlin, that yesterday announced itself. So the head of the climate change framework um, signed on and is going to be bringing on that entire uh, wealth of... uh, expertise that that resides in Bonn and Berlin. So it's, this is, you know, it's like a, it's a, it is a snowball effect now. People have really realized that it makes sense and they see the difference. And the difference is really positive on a whole series of levels, even at the personal level, not just in terms of the impact of the work that we're doing and, and the objectives that we have been given ourselves. So it's very good. Can I just also say on an aspiration level, some of the most powerful things are actually some of the most simple. So one of the great things about being a champion. It's been said by some people, it's simple but not simplistic, and it's very powerful to have to make a personal commitment. And indeed, groups of people have made this one work-life-family balance commitment, saying, we won't call meetings before 8.30 or after 5 o'clock in the late afternoon, which seems really 
very simple, but has transformed a lot of people's lives and get, and and winds up giving parents in particular, you know, young parents, real opportunities to participate where they may not have had that chance before. So what I really like is the spectrum of the commitments. They're from very personal and simple um, in your sphere of influence at your mission to all the way going to really doing external programming at a large organization with a, with a big budget. And it's all linked. You know, you have a well-balanced, happy family. They're going to be more productive in their work. And we can go out with a chain. As someone with two small children at home and a husband who's also a UN negotiator, I understand that. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's very personal. Yeah. Any other major things that you feel like we would be remiss to not celebrate here? I think we should celebrate uh, this increasing uh, awareness that is really pushing this forward. I'm very happy to see that the impact is kind of multiplying. And God knows where it's going to go, but we're all continuing to push. I would say also in a world that is perceived as more polarized, where people and governments look inwards in a more nationalistic way. Here in Geneva, uh, we have this chance to reach out and find friends, partners, stakeholders, colleagues in a way I thought was not would not be possible because dealing with equality and gender equality strikes a tone in everybody. It's it's so much easier to speak to African colleagues, South American, Asian, because we all have an experience which is related to discrimination or inequality. So to sort of take it down from big policy, polarized propaganda like mm-hmm. statements to the small talk where we find, oh my gosh, I have the same experience you had when you were a child or a young woman striving for a job or whatever. And and that's great because if we don't find this trust and equal similar stories, it will be very difficult to push this. But we have it here in Geneva. I love that you say that about trust, because the thing that I would say to add is that this is a strangely a, a stealth app for democracy, because once we start making our institutions really accountable, um, that we are transparent, when people see that they're being delivered, there are, there are good and values that are being delivered to them, which I do think that this gender equality does deliver on so many levels, I think that it really reinvigorates your trust in the system. We're not only helping gender equality, but we're helping the, the larger picture. But of course, gender equality is for us all, right? It's a male-female program that has to happen with you know, all of us working together. I would be remiss to not mention that I have an insider stake in the outcome of this initiative as well. I spent two years of my three in Geneva working on this night and day. Um, And one of my major concerns in the last year was, how does this survive? And I did a study of initiatives that had thrived in Geneva. And what were the common denominator that made those things live on beyond certain personalities or people? And I looked at things like the Geneva Group and others and realized that the real value in it was the shared leadership and the ability to create an organization or a movement that would flexibly move between member states as they were ready to lead. And I knew that anytime Americans go through a major administration shift, it would be essential if this was going to thrive that there would be another member state. And I'm very grateful to Sweden that they were ready to kind of come in and help fill that role and have made it even more multilateral. It's it's For this to thrive, it's important that all of Geneva feel like they have a piece of the ownership mm-hmm. and it moves forward and that, in fact, it's a sign of its success that 
at this time, everyone does feel a sense of ownership? No, and it's evolving, and we are talking about that evolution and how we're going to change uh, the way we do business and how to, particularly what you're just mentioning now, how we ensure its longevity and how we can make sure that there is a handover. Since they are permanent, um, sorry, personal commitments, mm-hmm. whenever uh, an ambassador leaves, it's important that uh, his or her successor uh, signs up immediately. And the interesting part of that is, you know, I receive all newcomers and part of my talk with them is on this and I remind them of it. But by now, I don't even need to anymore because uh, some of the first things that their predecessors uh, brief them on is that. You can check the sincerity of their commitments. Well, but I mean, more and more signing on. It's gone. And I think what's interesting is we were deciding whether or not it should be an institution or the leader. There was a lot of pushback of, oh, make it institution that way. It's just easier to maintain. I was like, but then you're going to learn, you're going to lose that commitment Mm -hmm. from individuals who are impassioned by this. Oh, but you're making more work. Well, we have to decide, is it the right amount of work to succeed? The fact that this is a personal commitment by the leaders of all the the, the institutions, never mind what they are, empowers the staff and the colleagues to do it. Mm -hmm. If it's an institution, then it kind of gets dissipated somewhere and nobody's really responsible and you kind of lose sight of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, the personal aspect of it has been really important. We have to keep up the attraction, and I think that we can do with a personal commitment. My favorite part of those two years, hands down, were meetings with the impact groups and meeting the gender focal points at each of these agencies Mm -hmm. and at each of the missions who were there because they were passionate about these issues. They'd been sitting on opportunities that had bothered them. It kept them awake at night for years, and they finally had fertile soil to plant those seeds and find out how their colleagues could help them get it done. And no matter how complicated my day in the office would be, I'd see that appointment coming up for an impact group, and I'd be like, yes, I can get out of my office and be reinvigorated by the collective group. And so there's the champions are a huge part of this, but it's the connecting of that gender focal point with that champion that will kind of make sure it goes forward. And it's kind of magic in many ways. All right, the last part of all of our podcasts have been a shout out to people who have inspired you in the last year, whether it's on the topic of gender equality or just in general has made you think more creatively about how you can go about doing your own work. Who has captured your imagination this year? I'm a bit picky about uh, role models and uh, because on the one hand, there are many, but you would like to n- mention someone which is outstanding. So I, I thought of a person who was uh, my predecessor in a sense, a, a Norwegian-born lady in the um, who, who worked in the uh, late 19th century, early 20th century, on exactly the same issues we are doing today. Her name is Anna Buggevixel. She And here in Geneva, she worked on peace and gender, but actually my big role models and heroes are my colleagues who live and work and represent countries who haven't come as far yet and they when they for example ask me uh, what can i do to move things quicker and then they answer it themselves they say actually we have to do it ourselves and i admire them for their courage for their engagement their strength it's difficult to just pick one, frankly, and um, I, I'd rather give a shout out to a sort of a generic persons uh, in the terms of entrepreneurs, women entrepreneurs in particular, who against all odds think outside the box, act outside the box, and do extraordinary things. I've met quite a few of them over the past years, and I keep doing so, particularly among the younger generation that I that I speak to, and I take every opportunity to be able to who are more and more engaged, who find amazing, innovative ways 
of moving whatever they believe in forward and do so in an increasingly integrated and collaborative way with others and really showing the way for forward for us, all of us, um, in moving forward if we're going to really make it as a race, frankly, uh, where you have an energy and a, and a foresight and a, and a commitment that is really uh, fantastic. And uh, we just need more of them. Well, I love that because that's exactly women at the table's work with their thing called agency. We take feminist rock stars from the front lines and we try and put them on the global stage. So I couldn't, I couldn't applaud anything more. But I do have a practical answer because you asked me to be practical and I do follow your, your advice. I mean, one would be Iris Bonet, who is Swiss, um, but is a behavioral economist at Harvard. Um, where she directs the Women in Public Policy program. And she has a book called What Works? Gender Equality by Design, which has become our little Bible um, because it's full of data and it breaks down human resource barriers. It's just sort of like the how-to book and it's just, it's it's totally fabulous. And then the other person who really, um, so I, and I'd love to meet her, so I hope we shout out to her and she she hears that we've, we've tweeted about her. The other is Margaret Heffernan, whose two TED Talks, I think, are sort of small masterpieces. But she also wrote a book called Beyond Measure, The Big Impact of Small Changes, which is kind of a manifesto for managers and CEOs about how organizations can make these huge changes with like little tiny steps, mm-hmm. which is our project before us. And then the other um, thing that Margaret has recently written um, comes from this lecture she gave, which she published as a 19th century pamphlet called Feminist Utopias, More Than a Dream. And I think that's, I love that. That's my final word. I don't usually offer my own, but today I will. Um, (laughs) the, The two people who I've looked at, and it's the collective work that has inspired me through this is Michael Kimmel's work on kind of masculinity, Mm -hmm. but also Brene Brown's research on Mm -hmm. shame. And shame is not a sexy topic. No one ever wants to talk about it because it feels shameful. But until we understand the things that trigger that response, that shut us down from being mindful, that shut us down from engaging with people who make us uncomfortable because it's not about them, it's about us, Mm -hmm. then we're not really going to get past these barriers that are there. And when we've introduced the gender champions concept to new audiences, you can see that discomfort in the room. And the more we understand what that is about, the better we're going to be able to communicate and connect because ultimately, this is about communicating. Thank you. Thank you all for making time today. I know how busy you all are. Thank you for taking this and running with it. I will be sending you all the best vibes as you continue forward in the years to come. Thank you to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. I can't thank enough Director General Michael Muller, Ambassador Veronica Bard, and Executive Director Caitlin Kraft Buckman for taking the time out of their busy schedules to be part of this podcast series. Thank you to the United Nations Information Service sound team at the historic League of Nations radio studio for helping us do justice to our guests' great ideas. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. As we explained in the intro to the podcast series, each episode will delve into a completely different field. Collectively, they will tell the story of the diverse array of international experts, our favorite of Geneva's geeks, and their innovative collaborations that will impact our future. Be on the lookout for our upcoming episodes. You can listen to the podcast at the U.S. Mission to the United Nations in Geneva website or subscribe on iTunes. Rate us, send us your ideas and feedback. We look forward to bringing you into the fold of Geneva's geeky discussions that we couldn't stop thinking about. We hope that you find them as compelling, too.